Welcome to the Transformation Leaders Podcast. I'm Tony Lockwood and I'm delighted you have joined me on this latest episode. This podcast combines discussions with transformation leaders who openly talk about their experiences, both positive and developmental, along with recordings of the roundtable discussions that we host as part of the Transformation Leaders Hub, where we share and discuss best practices and world-class basics that you can quickly and easily deploy that will help you to deliver successful change and transformation. Please do subscribe to the show. You'll be the first to know about new episodes and it really helps me to attract more guests onto the show for them to share their experiences with you. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Barry Robbins. I'll let him tell you more about his background as we get into the discussion. But it's safe to say I found our conversation fascinating and I hope that you do too. So without further delay, Let's get on with the show. Hi, Barry. Uh, welcome to the Transformation Leaders Podcast. Uh, it's great that you can join me today. As we do on all of these, it'd be great if you could start off and just give us a little bit of history about yourself, um, a bit of background, and, and ultimately how you first got involved in change and transformation. So um, my name is Barry Robbins. I am a technology executive. I've led companies and initiatives heavily in the United States, but all over the globe. Um, I got started in transformation when I was thrown in by IBM, who I worked for at the time, to a situation where it wasn't exactly healthy. And I realized that it wasn't about the technology. Honestly, it was about the people, the process, the organization. It was about the wrappers of the technology that were dysfunctional and that I needed to correct them before the technology could deliver. And as part of that, I realized I needed to help lead people through change as in organizational change management and lead individuals through the transition into a new environment as in change transition. So more William Bridges than Cotter. Um, so that's kind of how I got started. And, you know, uh, you tend to learn better from fire yes. a lot of times than you do if everything's smooth and perfectly rolling. And so for the next 20 years, I've kind of been going into organizations for that purpose. I like to tell people I generally go into an organization for one of three reasons. I go in for a organizational change, merger, acquisition, divestiture. It's almost always after the fact because people don't generally consider technology before the fact except for a preliminary security audit. The second reason is a market change. A company's going from fast to slow growth, slow to fast growth. They're, they're at an inflection point. And the third reason is they're trying to inculcate technology into the products and services and maybe they don't know how, maybe they've neglected the technology organization. Maybe there's barriers or obstacles in their processes, organization, people, or even they're making the wrong technology decisions. And I help them straight that out. So that's kind of who I am and what I do. Brilliant. And, and it's fascinating that you brought up right at the start of that, that you, you know the, the initial project that you got involved in, it wasn't the technology that, that was in, inhibiting the, the delivery. It was the people, the process around that technology, and I find that all the time. Um, and and you know, bringing up that that right at the start there, bringing up the fact that your role is yes focused upon the technology, but all the time it's about taking people on that journey. Uh, and I'm sure I'd like to explore that a little bit further with some of your experiences as, as we go through the show. So even when the 
Um, the challenge is, let's say they, they have a bad piece of technology or antiquated or legacy piece of technology that's not been modernized. The underlying challenge is generally the technology. It was a decision not to refresh, not to update, not to invest or to um, invest poorly. You know, so even those symptoms aren't generally about the technology so much as about the wrapper. Yes. Yeah. And, and I think what I've also found is that, especially with legacy technology, it's been customized so much that actually trying to unweave and, 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 and disconnect all the things that have been bolted onto it is almost a bit, oh, my God, we, <laughs> how can we do this? I was talking to someone a few couple of years ago now that was um, a technology lead in one of the banks I'd previously worked with sort of 15, 20 years ago. And, and they were trying to do a, a, a separation uh, of, of part of the bank and sell it off to a, another bank. And that overall program, which was strategically important, um, not just for the bank, but for uh, the UK government who had um, um, stepped in to um, ensure that the bank didn't fall over in, in, in the crash in 2008, that whole program failed because it, they weren't able to unravel all of the legacy issues and legacy systems and legacy processes that had been built onto the technology. Um, be, because during during the previous 20 years, as people had bolted other stuff on, they'd never kept a track of it. They'd never put the governance in, all, all that sort of stuff. So fundamentally, it came down to the people and the processes as opposed to the technology. I think it's um, an author by the name of Alves, A-L-V-E-S, that articulates there are 15 different kinds of technical debt, not one, yeah. 15 different kinds. And that some of those are, you know, bad coding practices, bad infrastructure, you know, the kind of things that you were just kind of discussing. But some of those include people and skills and, you know, so um, I think people tend to view the technical debt as a good thing at the time. And, and act, that's actually how it gets created. It gets created the shortcuts. Um, we don't want to invest the proper amount. So therefore, we're going to shortcut this or, or cut a corner here. And you end up paying for that later. And if you're not willing to make that future payment, then it kind of paints you in a corner. Yes. Absolutely. And I've also found that a lot of a lot of challenges, uh, not necessarily in terms of the hardware, the, you know, the technical aspects, it's the it's the data and having access and being able to transition the data from one system to the next. What what, what sort of uh, experience have you had around that? So the, the largest challenges we've had, honestly, is about the rationalization and normalization of data from different systems. Yeah. So the different disparate systems you create uh, something as simple as a date, right? And you create it in different formats, uh, maybe because you one format grew up in the US and one format grew up in the EU or the UK or whoever, right? So you end up with different date formats that you have to rationalize. Now apply that to all the different possible permutations of addresses mm. where people have uh, abbreviations or they format them different in the different countries. And then you have to rationalize that to a particular format. I think the data rationalization normalization is the largest barrier to um, uh, data analytics, business intelligence, um, data innovation. 
And, and most of that is created because of the way that we collect data in different systems and that they weren't normalized at the time of creation because of acquisition, because of whatever. Um, so, so yeah, it applies even on the data front. Yeah, I've been working in an organization recently and um, different parts of the business spoke about a specific element as if they were talking about the same thing. But when you actually started to peel back the onion to get a clarity about whether or not we were really talking about a red apple versus a red apple, they weren't. They were they were measuring things in a different way. And and, and senior management were, were, were looking to make some big investment decisions based upon this, these, these sort of comparison, comparison cost base of, of the two of the two sides of the organization. And we weren't comparing apples and apples. We were comparing apples and oranges. Um, and, and, and it was as a result of many times, many years past, people have started to evolve what the definition of this subject matter was. And um, it, 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 can, it can make fundamental differences, can't it? And, and derail lots and lots of uh, potential opportunities. I think that's why um, my approach for the last, I don't know, decade plus on acquisitions and divestitures has been pick up the data, don't pick up the systems. Because if I'm trying to integrate those systems, um, I don't, um, from an acquisition, I don't want to integrate them. Um, I don't want to integrate two different systems. I rather would pick up the data and normalize the data at that time. And on the divestiture side, I would rather leave the technical debt behind, you know, that old piece of code that they want to shovel off to the uh, divested organization. I'd rather just pick up the data and turn off all those old systems and put it into a new system following new cloud first kind of principles, et cetera. And how often are you able to do that? Uh, is, I would have thought that a lot of, um, senior leadership team would be very wary of either dropping existing systems um, and putting in new systems, or um, you know that the the inherent change in process and, and and people change that results off the back of that. Well, um, so it's a little bit of a dice roll whether that is approved or not. Um, it's a lot, lot, lot harder to do that on the manufacturing systems, right? Because you want to be as disruptive to the manufacturing processes as possible. On the retail side, it's a little easier, but it's still difficult. On the back end side, the finances, the personnel, the people, the administrative, et cetera, that becomes really relatively easy. That's just a pure cultural change. Yeah. And in one of those major organizational shifts, you're already going through a major cultural change. And so it it sounds like you at first blush that you would not want to add cultural change on top of cultural change. But the truth is it's already disruptive. Now's the time to do it, right? It's not seen as an incremental change. It's seen as part of the single change. And so it's actually easier to manage through that than you would think um, by adding both of those together into a single change. Good. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think and one of the challenges a lot of organizations that emerged um, or acquired that the, the, the bringing together those two cultures 
um, on the people side is always challenging and, and and trying to create a new culture for the combined entity is probably the way forward as opposed to saying you, we've we've taken you over you're now part of us and you've got to adapt your ways and and and, and thought processes to the way that we work actually accepting that you're now a different organization and let's create a new culture and a new way of working and and as you say um a new technology on the top of that yeah makes makes perfect it doesn't usually work that way it usually works such that the organization with the most power the acquiring organization or the divesting organization is the one who kind of can dictate the that cultural norm and almost always it's as you say we want the acquired entity to conform to our culture yeah but the reason a lot of times that you acquired that entity was because of their innovative culture right so that kind of spurs our conversation towards innovation but it the reason you acquired them is because they were skunk works because they were innovative and fast moving and so immediately most organizations try and force them into this bureaucratic gate-based organization and they stymie the the acquired organization for the and essentially um, divest the acquired organization of the attributes that for which they acquired them yeah totally agree and, and experience of that um many years ago I, I was involved in i suppose what was probably one of the first fintech businesses in the uk setting that up um 25 years ago um, and uh, they were very successful, grew very quickly um, because of the culture that they created, that ability to be very, very agile, et cetera, et cetera. Um, after probably six or seven years, one of the big US-based big banks came along and said, yeah, we fancy having a bit of this. We want to bring that culture into the organization because what you've been able to achieve was amazing come in, they acquired, and literally in six months, most of the people from the fintech left because they could just couldn't get on with the culture within the big one where there was, as you say, 10 layers of approval before they could buy a stapler. You know, silly little things like that. Um, and all the value of that acquisition dissipated very, very quickly. Um, so I think that that... that I know that's probably extreme, but that ability to, as you say, embrace new culture and then look to bring the two cultures together and, and create a new one is, is, is often the way to generate that and, and deliver the real value that you're expecting. I think the challenge there, like, for instance, I did an engagement recently that had a large number of decentralized IT organizations. The challenge there was they were inefficient right um and not in control and control as in compliance security so the balance was figuring out well what do you need to delegate to a central authority yeah. and what do you need to delegate to a decentralized authority that can move faster can be more responsive that's more in tune with whoever the customer or business partner is um, that's the balance. And in this particular engagement, that's exactly what we did. We said, okay, these particular functions need to be centralized. And these particular functions can be or may be delegated. So for particular business units that don't want that responsibility, they can you know, report to the shared services to the centralized organization for. 
And for this set of responsibilities, they're going to be held at the decentralized business unit level. Yeah. And, but it was a deliberate decision. I think that helps uh, mitigate a lot of the cultural angst associated with uh, those kind of situations because you're, people know where the guardrails are. When um, in, in a base acquisition, a lot of times the acquired does not know where the guardrails are because those are being formed by the parent organization, the new parent organization, as they go. Yeah, yeah and, I, and I think, you know, I'm in the process of, of, of building out a transformation leader's body of knowledge, uh, and we've created a transformation canvas. Um, and the first four elements of the nine elements of the canvas are all about setting, establishing the roadmap. And that looks at that vision, getting clarity about why we're doing the change and what, what it is. Let's understand what that means from a business model perspective and operating model perspective. And, the, and also what does it take in relation to technology and, and that innovation moving forward. But the key thing is, is getting clarity around that and consistent understanding of that and communicating that and getting people to buy into it. And if they weren't, if they're not going to buy into it, manage them through the process either sometimes they've got to leave or sometimes you've got to put more effort into bringing them on board but as you said right at the start taking them on that journey but it all starts by having that clarity as you said the guardrails of what it is that you're going to do um, and why you're doing it is is i think it tends to be one of the um, main approaches that you can actually get people to to get on board with you once they understand the why, um, as opposed to what a lot of people just talk about is the how we're going to do it or what we're going to change, let's focus in on the why. That, that tends to make a big difference for people. I've never stepped into an organization that actually had a strategy. Yeah. They may have had a vision. They may have had a set of a portfolio of initiatives, but they never had a, none of them have had a comprehensive strategy. And so I tend to articulate it, uh, kind of think of it as a wheel and it, there's a bunch of different spokes and it has to start with that vision, right? And I actually, before the vision, I, I argue that it starts with values, that yeah. if you don't have cons consensus on what the values of your organization be, then those will morph over time, which derails your strategy. So, um, but I tend to articulate it when I get to the point where it's been developed. We've gotten input from all the different stakeholders, lateral and horizontal and vertical. Then I tend to articulate it. There's a burning platform. This is the reason that we have to move, right? The old MBA term. And then I articulate there's a heavenly vision. And between the two, there's a bunch of stops. There's a bunch of crossroads and decision points. And that heavenly vision may morph a little bit, but this is where we're trying to head to. And these are the stops that we see on the way. Um, that helps, I think, from an organizational change management, helps people to buy, to your point, to buy into the change and move forward and get on board with the change and leave behind the, the tightness that, on which they held the old, right? It doesn't help everybody. You still got 20 to 30% um, who are either blockers deliberately because they don't want any part of that, right? Which you need to essentially argue should they be on the bus at all 
or they're individuals who have to be helped through the grieving, the mourning process, right? Stages of grief to let go of what was their baby, what was beautiful at the time, but is not now is maybe a hindrance to action. So I tend to articulate it in those two different ways. And I think that's what brings an organization forward out of previous state to future state. Yeah, no, absolutely. Totally agree with that. Transformations by definition tend to be big things, tend to be multi-year things. Um, and, and taking that people on that journey over a long period of time creates challenges. What, what do you do to try to maintain that momentum as you go through those, those bigger transformations? They, um, honestly, communication is the key. If you have to have a communication with the organization. Remember why we're doing this, right? Remember that ugly um, baby. Remember that ugly situation that we were trying to leave? We tend to forget pain. So sometimes we have to be reminded about the pain. But we also have to be reminded about what we're walking towards, right? Because there's a trough of despair. There's a desert that we're walking through in the middle of that, that um, people have to remind it that we're not in here. We're not in this journey to get to this trough of despair, to get to this desert. You know, we're in this journey to cross the desert into, you know, whatever that heavenly vision, that promised land, that future is. And so I think communication is the big key. Yeah. Other thing is, uh, it's not necessarily a popular discussion, but sometimes the leaders are the right leaders for the right time, but not the right leaders for the next time, yeah. right? Sometimes you've got a leader who can step you out of the old, but not step you into the new. Sometimes you've got a leader who can step you into the new, but can't step you out of the old. So sometimes you have to evaluate um, how your, as part of your strategic plan, what is your strategic plan for your leadership? Because some people will have great operational run skills, but not the transformation skills, or they have great transformation skills, but once they've transformed, they can't run. So I think you have to take a look at that as well, because I think a lot of times where we fail is either one of those two things. We either fail in the continual communication, right? And feedback loops, or we fail on the leader is the wrong leader to take the next step. Uh, they were the right leader for this step and not the next. Yeah, I think seeing it in, in almost those three compartments is, is really insightful. You So you've got your compartment one, which was the as is, where we where we moving from, and compartment three is where we're moving towards. But actually, there's a space in the middle, the desert, that compartment, that you've got to go through. And there will be some people that won't be able to live in all three compartments. Um, and there'll be people that you need to introduce into the business to get you through um, for, for, from, from one compartment to the next to the next. And, um, and accept that and see it as an opportunity for people and the people within the business to see it as an opportunity. You know, I, 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 interestingly enough, you know, if, if, if you ask me the first question I asked you about how did you first get into transformation, I, I was working in a bank. Um, we brought McKinsey's in. Um, McKinsey's um, worked worked out what the new bank should look like, um, and I was fortunate enough to get involved in um, the program, the change program, the transformation program, and running projects 
as a, as a internal subject matter expert type of person, three years later, went back into steady state banking and realized very quickly that I like change and transformation more than banking. Um, but, you know, I, I'd, to some extent, I'd worked in compartment one. I'd then heavily got involved in two. But when we got to three, it's like, I don't want this anymore. I'm, I'm quite happy being in, in, in compartment two. And, and it's, it's good for people to understand that, isn't it? And getting that, and getting that, um, that perspective on things. I think a lot of leaders, um, when they hit that compartment two, that desert, they derail themselves. They abandon their strategic plan because of the pain, the heat of the desert, right? The political heat, the heat from associates or stockholders or whatever it may be. And they abandon the change there because they underestimated how yeah. hot the desert was. Yeah. Um, but, and a lot of times it may have been that they didn't have the right strategy, but most of the time it's, it's, they had the right strategy. They just don't have the tolerance for that pain, knowing that that pain is temporal. So what, what do you do with those leaders then in terms of helping them through that, that pain? Um, I think it starts at the beginning. If you're, uh, I usually come in in the middle. I come in during the pain, right? Um, but it starts at the beginning. If you can paint the picture and let them know that this is going to hurt, right? Okay, um, I, I've got a broken leg. I need to go to the doctor. I, a doctor needs to set the leg. Well, setting the leg isn't painless, yeah. right? Um, the healing process of the leg is not painless. I can't just go from broken leg to healed leg overnight. There's this middle pain painful process um so i think you have to explain it in kind of those terms so they understand and then you help them to estimate correctly where the pain points will be and that's kind of a risk profile you have to help them estimate where the pain points would be now when you're in the middle a lot of times it's um, um you have to assure them okay this is normal this is expected right your employee engagement will go down because you've implemented this change, right? The minute you implement change, engagement goes down. Why? Because the, of a sense of insecurity associated with the job. So this is normal. So what do you do? Okay, here's the actions you take to help and bolster employee engagement and make sure they understand where you're going, et cetera. So you kind of help them through um, that process. And then sometimes it's that the strategic plan needs to change. Um, it's five degrees off. Right. They didn't listen to the feedback. They didn't listen to the signals. The general direction's right, but they're five degrees to the left, five degrees to the right, and it needs to be modified. And that modification, that sense that from an organization that they're being heard by the leader, I think is also very effective. Yeah, yeah I think you're absolutely right. I think the, the, the whole concept of helping them to accept where they are is normal that's what you should be expecting that there's a, there's a great graphic i've seen um that sort of says if you expect um transformation to be point a to point b in a straight line you've got a, you've got major you've got major worry because actually the, the, the part two of the of the cartoon is just this squiggly line uh, from point a to point b but that's exactly what exactly. it is it's all right you might you might you have to set off and really understand where point b is but getting from a to b is not going to be easy it's not going to be a straight line there's going to be lots of 
ups and downs and troughs and and, and and mountains to go through. But let's just accept them. And when we're in the down, let's accept it. And when we're in an up, let's celebrate it, but understand that we're probably not that far from seeing another valley again. And, and, and helping people to understand that, whether it's a leader or whether it's a frontline staff, I think is a critical skill of the transformation leaders who's taking people through that change. And you just raised a great point because a lot of times um, culturally we have difficulty with celebrating progress. Um, we either, we, we oftentimes celebrate progress incorrectly or we don't celebrate progress expecting, oh, we haven't arrived. So we can't celebrate yet. Um, but I, I was part of an organization where they celebrated the end when they were in the middle wrong right um but i i have the mantra that says progress is measured in the rearview mirror right if you in the united states texas is a huge state right if you try and drive across texas in one day you're going to be surprised that you're not getting anywhere it's going to feel like you've just been driving forever and you're still a long way from reaching your goal but if you look in the rearview mirror and realize that you started you know a day ago and it's and the border uh, the other side of Texas is way back behind you, then you recognize you've come a long way. So sometimes the success isn't about, are you there? It's about, we've made progress to get there. Okay. So I think you raised a great point. Yeah, it's, I, I use the um, cycling analogy quite a lot in terms of professional cycling and, and, and the, big, the big tours like the Tour de France, where... <laughs> I can't remember exactly, was it 26, 27 different stages? And, and every day, someone celebrates a win, but the rest of the people celebrate getting through that stage. Um, so, yeah, you go have some wins, but ultimately, you know, as a group of people in that peloton, getting to the next threshold for the next day is a major success. So let's, let's acknowledge that. And bring people on that journey and pat people on the back that when, when they achieve those key critical milestones. And it's a 2,500 mile team sport, right? Whether we're talking about the tour, the Giro, the Vuelta, you know, it's 2,500 miles team sport. Um, you know, the Durango kid just won the Vuelta. He wasn't supposed to win. Right. But um, he had so much success early on that his team supported them. So, if you forget that it's a team sport and you look at it as a bunch of individual contributors, you fail as well. No, I, 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 I use sports analogies a lot, and I think cycling is a, is a really good analogy for lots of stuff in business. As you say, you've got a team, um, a cycling team of eight to 10 people, and their whole focus is to get the leader through that finishing line first. Um, and um, yeah, I think there's some um, very, uh, lots of fascinating similarities with, 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 that we can bring across into business. So we're coming towards the end now. Um, we, we tend to finish off with one question, which is throughout your career, with all of the experience that, that you, you, you've gained, the, the successes, may, 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 maybe some, some, some things that you've been involved in that's been less than successful. If you could sort of boil all that down to just one core takeaway that you want to leave the listeners with today what what would that one thing be in the context of change and transformation um so we haven't discussed it but you know you know that i'm pursuing my phd and i'm in the middle of the dissertation process and uh, 
my PhD research is around innovation. Mm -hmm. And people oftentimes, so the takeaway, people oftentimes assume that innovation and transformation are synonymous, but they're actually not. Transformation is about applying knowledge from either inside or outside your firm, known knowledge, right? Things people already know to bring value to your organization. Innovation is about inventing. It's about novel. It's about something that's unknown. And the organizational dynamics that are required to foster innovation and the organizational dynamics required to foster transformation aren't the same. Mm -hmm. um, but yet we tend to equate and assume that they are, which I think going back to our early conversation, it's why many acquisitions that are required for innovation are required for uh, agility or required for um, those attributes fail because they don't recognize that transformation and innovation culturally are distinct entities. Yeah. So your one takeaway from that then is treat them separately, treat them differently, treat, treat them independently. Treat them differently, separately, independently. There is a lot of times overlap in the outcomes, yeah. but the, culturally they're distinct entities. Um, he, Encouraging transformation is still a disciplined process. We're encouraging innovation tends to be an undisciplined process. Mm -hmm. You may use particular disciplines to uh, enable it, right? As a foundation, for instance, uh, you may still use disciplines around organizational design um, for innovation to design a skunk work. For transformations, you may design a SWAT team. So in that sense, they're similar but the, the freedom associated with each organization are distinctly different. Mm -hmm. So um, the takeaway is, yeah, you have to recognize what is your goal and is your goal innovation or is your goal transformation? For the vast majority of firms, whether I'm talking about the Fortune 10s or SMBs or even startups, most of them are about transformation, not innovation, um, which means that your path forward, right? We talked about the burning platform, heavily vision and the train stops. Those are different. It's a different, um, it's a different roadway. It's a different interstate. It's a different um, uh, pathway than you would have for an innovation where you, you don't know where you're going. So what you need to do is you have to provide them a freedom to be innovative, to be creative, and that your organization that uh, tends to stifle innovation because it because of the gating it needs to change to support the innovation and remove some of those barriers. And I said we we're coming to the end, but it, it, this raises another question. Do you frame the innovation? And if you if, if you do, um, uh, how do you frame it in your experience for success? Yeah, so I'm gonna argue, I'm gonna mix the answer between experience and between what I'm doing with my research, right? So um, there is a difference between, um, so let me back up here. This is a little bit five minute conversation kind of thing. So a digitization is the, is a transformation of something that's analog into a digital form. Yeah. Right. So digital digitalization is about applying a digital technology into a different context, right? Digital innovation is about applying known digital components into a new construct product or service. All of those kind of require a, a body of knowledge. So what, it's very difficult to innovate if you don't have information, if you don't have knowledge, 
So um, I argue, and it's part of the research that I'm doing, I argue that you have two core requirements. You have a common knowledge requirement across your organization and outside extra to your organization that feeds uh, market knowledge, customer knowledge, vendor knowledge, supply chain knowledge, a competitor knowledge into your organization. Um, and that you have a process inside the organization and maybe potentially outside with vendors and partners and customers that allow them to participate in that innovation process. Those two attributes, I think, the, infra, the, the knowledge allows people to identify what's going on and be able to see an opportunity. And the common process across those organizations allow people to be able to voice their need, support, uh, desire to have that opportunity realized. And I think the two of those, the identification and the support, collaborate to make an innovation successful. The voicing itself tends to act as a self-determination, self-determining guardrails that prevents something. Well, okay, yeah, that's a great innovation, but you know what? That's not what we do. We're not good at that. We're never going to be good at that. And that constructive tension, that argumentation is also healthy. Right. Because, OK, well, maybe we're not, but maybe we need to spin off a company, create a company, um, you know, do something that is going to be good at that. So it opens up additional opportunities around the innovation side because of that argumentation. So um, there have been companies where they said, OK, I want you to spend four hours a week. Just blue sky think yeah. about what? Where are you getting the information from? Um, some of that maybe good and healthy occasionally, but I tend to think that a formalized acquisition of knowledge and a formalized process for innovation facilitates that blue sky thinking and provides guardrails so that it, um, so that it becomes more productive and realize a benefit to the firm and the society as a whole. Yeah, right. Well, thank you very much for that, Barry. I think uh, it makes it a lot more clear in my mind um, how, well, two things. One, how you should, how you should structure innovation perspective within an organization but again as you say the differences between innovation and transformation that's been really useful thank you very much and um, look forward to uh, hearing more about the uh, dissertation in due course hey tony thank you very much for your time i appreciate it thanks barry really great conversation and i'm sure our listeners will have enjoyed your stories and approach I trust that you have found this episode insightful and my wish is that you have found at least one nugget that you can take away, consider and deploy into your life, both business and potentially personal. This show is sponsored by the Transformation Leaders Hub, an exclusive community for those working in changing transformation. If you wish to check out the community, please go to www.thetransformationleadershub.com and sign up today and join your peers from around the globe. If you've enjoyed the show, please do subscribe and leave us a five-star rating. It really does help us to share the message with a wider audience. Also, feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions or indeed thoughts on a future episode. My contact details are in the show notes. Once again, thank you for joining me today and I look forward to sharing more episodes with you in the near future. Bye for now.